Welcome to the Welfare Culture Podcast, where we talk about all things Indigenous wellness. All right, Skuktash relatives. This is Thosh here, your co-host for the Welfare Culture Podcast. Han Medakiapi, hello relatives. I hope everybody's having a great day out there. And I'm so grateful that you all returned to the Welfare Culture Podcast to talk more about Indigenous wellness. So today's episode is all about food. Food, from our perspective as Indigenous people, food is one of our most sacred gifts from the great creator. It's made up of various spiritual entities that our ancestors have recognized since the beginning, since creation. And that's why a lot of our creation stories tell about this relationship that we've had with food. And we know that food was at the center of our culture for a long time because our survival had really depended upon it. So when people had healthful harvests, they considered themselves wealthy. Food was at the center of that culture. However, in today's world, food has become a very complex subject, and there's many different factors that make up what food is today. We know that it's spiritual, it's cultural, it's political, it's economical, and it's environmental. And what makes it even more confusing for people is that we have a slew of conflicting scientific studies. We have conflicting ideologies in regards to food and how we should be eating. And all of these ideas are mostly circulating within the dominant cultural conversations. However, for us as indigenous people, we have very unique conversations and work to do surrounding food. So we want to jump into that today. I couldn't agree more with Dosh that the complexity of this topic can't be overstated. Uh, there's so much confusion out there. There are so many uh, conflicting viewpoints on food and the best way to eat and uh, how to approach our diets to uh, create the healthiest possible lifestyle for us. Uh, but what we hope to do with this is to clear up a little bit of that confusion. And as Thosh mentioned, we definitely don't have all the answers, but we would also point out that nobody has all of the answers. And what we always say is that anybody who claims to have all of the answers is somebody who should be looked at with a little bit of skepticism because it's just too complex a topic to, to be able to claim um, all knowingness. And so... Uh, but what we can do is clear up a little bit of the confusion and we can definitely offer a perspective on food that is rooted in ancestral knowledge and indigenous values. And hopefully those of you out there listening will be able to connect a little bit deeper, a little bit further with uh, your journey toward toward figuring out what is the best way for you to eat. And if you think back to our first episodes, we presented our wellness model, the seven circles of wellness. And food is a very important circle within that. And it is one that is, as we already said, is, is a major determiner of how well we are spiritually, mentally, physically, and emotionally. So food impacts everybody. It impacts everything. Everybody should care about food and understand it to not just a physiological component, but understanding it in a spiritual component, political, cultural, all that. And so, so keep that in mind as you're listening to this episode that food is one of the important components of our seven circles of wellness. So the way we define food as co-creators of Welfare Culture Initiative is we define it as a personal communal relationship to food that is seasonal, 
local, from the land, nutrient-dense, and has cultural and spiritual significance. It is seeing food as an entity to have a relationship with. So we're in this phase today where our culture and the world around us has transformed to this place where unhealthy foods are abundant, where a sedentary lifestyle is uh, the norm, and we need to actively work to get out of that. And to demonstrate that point, I'm going to share a quote from a leading philosopher and thinker and activist from the Seneca Nation named John Mohawk. And he writes this amazing book called Thinking in Indian. And in that book, he says, I once heard that culture is what one does without thinking about it. There was a time when Indian people would get enough exercise because there wasn't much choice. Unless one was going to just lie around, one had to walk. People who wanted to eat had to do something to get their food. They had to hunt, fish, garden, which are all good exercise. So he says a healthy diet was fairly easy to come by. There were few alternatives to healthy foods. And if you wanted junk food, you were out of luck. In the contemporary world, doing things without thinking about them is not working out. Yeah, I love that quote there by John Mohawk. He was one of my favorite indigenous authors, philosophers, speakers, and he wrote that about 15 years ago. He's passed since then, but back in his earlier writings, he was already kind of putting spotlight on a lot of these contemporary issues and the roots of these issues and was talking about food sovereignty, was talking about health. So he was ahead of the time a little bit then. And today this is kind of a normal topic and discussion in native country, but even just 15 years ago, it really wasn't, you know, it was just a very small group sparse around native country, but collectively no one was writing about this and talking about this. And so I love that quote there. And it really brings us into um, understanding about uh, how the differences in our historical relationship to food to our contemporary relationships to food. And, and, and it's as we always said in many of our previous episodes, we, we talk about the reason why we are here. And it's while in trying to understand our contemporary health issues requires us to really look into our recent history where the colonial powers have and continue today to assert their violent practices and policies that have seized control of our lands and its resources. And this has created this this complex, multi-layered, intergenerational and historical trauma, which continues to create health disparities amongst the indigenous populations today. And so it's it's important that we always acknowledge that. And that's why we're in this healing phase today. And to follow up with that, um, again, our history of colonialism And the forcible removal from our food systems is exactly the reason why we are in this circumstance today. And interestingly enough, um, as much as this impacted indigenous communities, it has impacted all people as well. So everybody is suffering from colonialism, whether they realize it or not, and whether they are indigenous or not, because these consequences to our health are impacting everyone. They say uh, one in three Americans is either already diabetic or on the fast track to becoming so. And another leader and thinker, um, uh, a native doctor and uh, public health expert who we admire is Dr. Don Warren, who comes initially from the uh, Pine Ridge community, and he is currently heading the public health program at the University of North Dakota. And when he's talking about all of these issues, such as diabetes, he says, 
We didn't have these problems until tremendous changes in lifestyle. When rivers were dammed, when wild game and herds were taken away, land was seized by non-Indian people, and traditional farming went away. At that point, he says, the lifestyle changed dramatically from a healthy organic paleo diet to one dependent on government and commodity foods. Um, later on in that conversation, he says, I don't look at diabetes as a medical issue, but as a social justice ish issue. It's a physical manifestation of colonization. We've had dispossession of resources, so it's one of the outcomes. And again, this conversation, we will definitely in the future have entire podcasts on this history of colonialism and how it has impacted our health today. But we have to at least briefly mention those things so that everybody can recognize um, those of us who are suffering from poor health, um, those communities who have been marginalized um, through these historical processes. It is not the fault of individuals. It's not an a matter of laziness. It's not a matter of ignorance. Um, these are really systemic issues that have been deeply embedded in our communities for several hundred years. And so that's why now we have to, as John Mohawk said, we have to actively work to change the culture again surrounding food. We have to work to, as best as we can, get back to eating the way that our ancestors ate. And this doesn't necessarily mean we'll be eating the exact same foods or living their exact same lifestyles, but there are steps that we can take to get a little bit closer. So another interesting aspect to indigenous foods, anything regarding indigenous foods, is what people call it. And everywhere we travel around native country, we meet a lot of people that are constantly defining this in different terms in different ways. We hear people that refer to it as ancestral diet, ancestral foods, or indigenous diet, indigenous foods, tribal food sovereignty, indigenous food sovereignty. There's a lot of different ways that people uh, define this, and it can be kind of confusing there. And I always say that I think that the way to really just sum it up and eloquently express our foods is to define it while using our own languages, to utilize our indigenous languages. Where I come from, they say, oh, tam hai chuhuk. And so there's many different ways to define it. So first, we, we always like to say that we, we usually just call it ancestral foods to be very general and indigenous ancestral foods. And we like to stay away from using the term diet. And diet has a lot of negative connotations that we find, not only for us personally, but when we travel on native country and we do a lot of work, we find many people are turned off by the word diet. And I ask people, what do you think of when I say diet? And people say, I think of misery, or I think of restriction, or I think of being hungry all the time, being cranky. And these are feelings that shouldn't be associated with food. Food should make us feel reinvigorated. It should make us feel fueled. It should make us feel satiated in a healthy way and fuel us mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. So we try to stay away from that term diet. And the other reason why we don't use the term diet is because we don't necessarily believe that it's effective to try to create some kind of across-the-board, one-size-fits-all type of diet. As we know today, the dominant culture is oversaturated with all these fad diets, keto diet, paleo diet, vegan, vegetarian, carnivore, uh, pegan, uh, whatever you want to call it, ancestral diet. There's all these diets out there that makes it very confusing for people when they want to change their lifestyle and eat healthier. 
And so the reason why we don't advocate for a diet is because that we must, as all human beings, respect bio-individuality. Every human body varies in its nutritional requirements, and most diets fail because they're a one-size-fits-all approach. They don't, they don't assess the, the needs of every specific individual, and the diet depends based on genetic, ancestral, even geographical makeup. So there's just a lot of things to consider when choosing your own way of eating. And so this is why we personally don't follow diets. We don't count calories and all that kind of stuff. Um, we feel that those are very inefficient and it's very hard to do that correctly. And I know that there are a lot of people out there that are able to do that. And there is, I guess, a time and a place for counting calories and macronutrients is, uh, is something that you have to do. But for the average person that's looking just to be well, I, I personally don't think that it's very necessary. And I personally have been in good health without counting calories without counting macronutrients and all of that. Of course, that we have a general idea and understanding of that. We are consuming this much protein. We are consuming this much carbohydrates and we are consuming this much sugar, healthy fat fiber. There's, 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 of course, you have to do your education to find out the foods you're eating um, and what they contain and are those right for your body type. I, myself, I'm not a type two or a type one diabetic, but I like to check my blood sugar and see how different foods are impacting my blood sugar. If it's making my blood sugar too high, then I just try to stick to foods that are lower glycemic, which we'll talk about later on in another episode. But to sum it up, we must respect bio-individuality of every person. Every person is different. So the one-size-fits-all type of diet is not going to be successful for some people as it is for other people because there's so many factors that play a role in it. Yes, that's right. There are so many factors that influence uh, food choices and the right thing for us to eat is going to vary based on the day, based on what we're doing that day, uh, our location, um, the stage that we're in in life, whether we have illnesses or not, who we're around, what's available to us. So it's all of these different factors and our, uh, our bio-individuality is a part of that. Um, as are many other things. So how do we begin making the best choice in the moment where we are that day? Uh, what we recommend is choosing foods according to indigenous values. We can demonstrate our values and our value systems through the food choices that we make. So even though we've come all this way and we've gone through colonialism and, and we're still going through these things that um, these social injustice issues that impact our ability to make the best choices, we still have our indigenous values and we still have the ability to make choices based with those. So the first one would be our connection to earth. Uh, some people call this environmentalism, but really we have this long history of having a relationship to earth and to the world around us. So you can ask yourself when you're choosing what to eat that day or choosing what to purchase at the store, was this food sustainably sourced? Um, meaning, has it had minimal impact on the environment? Another question would be, is this food being overproduced or exploited? Dasha and I recently quit eating avocados because we realized that um, in many instances, the high demand of avocados is now increasing drought conditions and is causing exploitation of different areas and different people. And so, again, uh, changing your food choices based on uh, our value of having a connection to the earth. You can also ask yourself, is this food local? Because as we know, local foods have a minimal environmental impact. 
is this food culturally significant to me and to my ancestors? For example, in recent years, uh, I have become much more aware of the foods that come from my tribal nations, and I attempt to incorporate those whenever possible. Um, is this food a real food or is it a byproduct of food that was created in a factory? So again, the more that we eat these factory produced foods, the further away we are from our connection to earth. The next value that we can look to is gratitude. No matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, showing gratitude toward your food and to those who prepare the meal is going to be really important. And later on, Thosh is going to get more into what the mindful eating practices are. So our next indigenous value that we should always maintain and demonstrate through our food choices is compassion. Uh, we've always been a compassionate people and we need to maintain that. So what you can ask yourself when making a choice is where the people and lands along this food items commodity chain treated fairly and paid properly. We have to have compassion for, uh, for other people in our world. And, uh, one thing that you can get in the practice of doing is thinking about commodity chains, which means all food comes from somewhere. So even though it seems to just magically appear in these grocery stores, it doesn't, they all undergo these long processes, even some of our real whole foods. Um, so try to make the best choices possible and see if you can trace the commodity chains of your foods and that's why, again, it's often a good choice to eat locally because the, f the less the foods travel, the more they maintain their nutrient density and also the less likely it is that um, people have been uh, treated unfairly along the way. So there's more indigenous values, of course, that also go into our food choices, but those are a few just to start with. So to reiterate, connection to earth, gratitude and compassion. And so Chelsea, you mentioned mindful eating and these kind of go along with values-based eating. So basically what mindful eating is, is it's a way to connect more deeply with your food is being very present with the food and paying attention to the food, acknowledging the textures, the flavors and acknowledging how it makes you feel and thinking about these different connections to food. And it, it really just changes our whole perception in relation to food. And so there's a lot of different ideas that are associated with mindful eating right now, but just a few that I wanted to share is I think a really important one is to always be able to discern if you are really hungry or if you are just eating out of boredom. Because, you know, if food is around, we're just going to go for it. And that's what we are as human beings. We love to eat. If food is around, we're going to eat it. And so this is a, a really good one that helps me a lot of times too. And it helps me stay in my fasting periods. And I mentioned earlier, it's about being fully present. It's about acknowledging the textures, the flavors, the way it makes you feel. And one way to do that is to eat without any electronic devices nearby. And I know we kind of see that a lot. You see that in families' homes or you go to restaurants and everyone's sitting at the table and they're all tuned into their phone and scrolling and not even paying attention to what they're eating. And they're not maybe conversing with each other and showing each other attention. So that's one thing you can do as well is, is abstain from using electronic devices. The third one is, is to have gratitude always and that's what we've been talking about this whole time and that's one of our teachings and many of our people have shown gratitude in different ways but that's one thing that you can do while you're consuming and while you're eating your food is that you're just giving thanks to that plant that given its body the animal that given its body to nurture us and when you are practicing in that mind state more it really has a really a, a nice positive impact on your your general outlook on life and it conditions us to think positively and to think about 
uh, the good things that we do have access to. And it, it keeps us in a state of gratitude a lot. So this is this is a good thing for, you know, people who are suffering from what we call chronic negative thinking. So uh, having this overall state of gratitude while you're eating is a really important one. And the fourth one that I find very helpful is eating just enough until you feel satiated. So that means eating slowly, allowing time to to chew and allowing the brain actually to receive message that you're full from your stomach. And so a lot of times this is helpful for me too, is I'll eat. I'm really chewing that food up too, because that also helps with digestion. If you're chewing it better, it helps with digestion and breaking down the food in your, your, your digestive tract. And so what I'll do is I try to acknowledge, all right, I feel good. I feel satiated and I don't need to eat anymore. So I kind of tell myself these affirmations and I, I find it very helpful because if I'm mindlessly eating, I'm not thinking about any of that. And I'm just going in, I'm just eating and eating and eating. And before you know it, you know, all the food is gone and you know, you're feeling full, you're feeling bloated. And so this is a really good one to help prevent from overeating. And so that's mindful eating. And there's many different versions of that, many different takes on that. That's that's our take on it. That's what we find to be very helpful. And so real food, ancestral foods should do four things for our physiology. It should improve our brain cognition. It should improve our healthy hormone levels. It should improve our immune system. And it should have a positive influence on the diversity of our gut microbiome. All these things have the ability to impact our mental our physical, our emotional. And from a spiritual standpoint, the way it was told to me was that food that is created by our mother earth, whether it was grown, we planted it, or where it was harvested on the land, it's organic, it's real, it's a real substance. It resonates at a higher spiritual frequency because it's created by mother earth, as opposed to say processed foods that are low frequency and are created with anti-nutrients. So when we are aligning ourselves with these real foods, we are raising our, our, our spiritual consciousness in alignment with them through not just consuming them, but being around them and getting to understand the seeds, getting to understand the patterns of the plants out on the land and getting to understand the animal migratory patterns and spending time with that. I believe that that has that positive influence on the spiritual well-being. I also believe that when we are eating our original foods that our ancestors have eaten, we are creating a direct connection to our ancestors' experience. We're eating the foods that they have eaten, and it's nourishing the, our bodies in the same way. And sure, yeah, our world has changed. Much of our land has changed. The soil microbes, the nutrient density of the food isn't the same. We even don't even have a lot of the same foods. A lot of them are, are no longer about. They became extinct. But ultimately, we are experiencing our, what our ancestors have experienced. And when we cook in our home, when we cook manomen, wild rice, or when we cook some atamhun or some other type of food that we get, maybe on on our travels it creates this aroma in our home it creates this this smell that really just takes you back and it gives you an idea of how it might have been to live in the time of our ancestors and this is this is good for self-actualization this is good for connecting us to something larger and as we know for some people it's hard to connect with their indigeneity but i believe that connecting with your ancestral foods is a powerful way to do that
So now that we've talked about our philosophy behind food and some of the beliefs that we hold regarding food practices, let's get into practical applicability. So how um, today, right now, do we start changing our relationship to food? Yeah, that's right. And what we have found by putting our minds together is that there's six areas that will help to strengthen our relationship to food. And it's it's learning to navigate the grocery store, number one. Number two is cooking once again. And three, hunting or fishing, um, giving thanks. Number four is to maintain gratitude. And five is to learn to harvest food, whether you're planted it or it's being out on the land. And then six is to grow food once again. And a lot of people are probably already doing a lot of these things right here. And everyone, depending on your location, and your accessibility to land and accessibility to food. Everyone's going to have a different way of being able to navigate these areas. But we want to go through each and every one of them and kind of just talk a little bit about what we've learned. And the first one that we actually want to dive into and talk about is navigating the grocery store. And we know that for a lot of people going into the grocery store, it's, it's kind of an intimidating thing, right? You walk in and what do you see? You just, you're overwhelmed by processed foods and colors and advertisements. And it can be an intimidating place for a lot of people. So we want to share with you some practices that have been very helpful for us. And the first one is to stay on the outer perimeter. And what is it that we find on the outer perimeter? We find the produce, we find all the meats there, and these are the whole foods. And remember, that's what we're advocating for is whole real food, whether that's indigenous food or foods from elsewhere, because we know, right, kind of pulling it back a little bit, not everyone has access to be able to go out and to, to harvest and to hunt and fish and do all these things, but many people are in uh, suburban areas or even our native people that are in cities, it's it's important to be able to navigate the grocery store. So staying on the perimeter is a really important one. Yeah, the perimeter is where you'll find the produce, the fresh foods, the meats, the veggies, the fruits. Uh, so it's most likely that you're going to find the, the real foods and the things that you really need on the outer perimeter of the grocery store. And in the aisles, there's really little that you will actually need there. It's mostly just packaged and processed junk foods. But uh, a few things that you may find there that you need is dried goods and like your cooking oils and that kind of thing. So that's step one. The next thing is to avoid uh, frozen foods or anything in cans, boxes, or bags. Again, that's the stuff that you're going to find in the aisles. So uh, there are, of course, a few exceptions to that. Uh, you know, maybe you want uh, some frozen fruits or vegetables. Maybe that's the easiest way for you to get access to that kind of stuff. Uh, for us, often the meat that we choose uh, happens to come in frozen, and we don't have a better option than that. So, I mean, if it's a real whole food okay, frozen might work. But what we're saying to avoid is more things like frozen pizzas or pre-prepared meals or, you know, nobody needs um, a TV dinner or uh, that kind of a frozen food. And the next one is to look at the ingredients and try to choose foods with five or four ingredients or less. And this is going to vary for a lot of people. Everyone has different standards, but generally the more ingredients that they have, the more preservatives they're going to have, the more additives they're going to have, the more processed refined sugars and carbohydrates that they're going to have. So it's important to be able to know what to look for when you're when you're looking at processed foods, because there's a number of different 
words for sugar. And there's a number of different chemicals that are very similar to sugar, such as sucrose, sucralose, saccharin, maltodextrose, and there's a slew of other ones. So it's really important to be aware of these. These at a molecular level are very similar to the sugar molecule. And a lot of them do the same thing in your bloodstream as a sugar molecule does. And so negatively impacts our blood lipids, negatively impacts our gut microbiome, our central nervous system can cause our blood sugars to skyrocket at a very short period. So you must do the research and find out all these different kinds of words for sugars and to know that there's many different types of, of preservatives, additives that are, are put inside of the foods, their chemicals that allow them to stay on the shelf for a long time. That actually takes us to the next step right here is to try to avoid foods with a very long shelf life or no expiration date. And why that is, is because that means it's a processed food. That means it's a food-like substance that contains antinutrients. And food should rot, right? Food should start to spoil. It should start to wilt. So even though we advocate for buying uh, fresh produce and whole foods as often as possible. Remember that you still have to be mindful of the choices that you're making in the produce section. One of the reasons is that pesticides and herbicides can be extremely harmful to our health. They can cause cancer. They can cause all sorts of ailments, just like the preservatives, just like the stuff you find in the boxes and the bags. There is some dangerous stuff that is found on produce. Uh, the good news is there are some sources that can help you figure out which produce is the safest and which produce to avoid. The Environmental Working Group did a list called the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. And what that shows is that there are 12 fruits and vegetables in the Dirty Dozen that are definitely the most dangerous and you should either not buy them at all or you should be positive that you're getting them from a clean source if you are getting them. Um, of course, these are things that if you're harvesting them yourself out in the wild, they're going to be safe. But if you're buying them as conventional produce, there is a very, very strong chance that they're going to have pesticide and herbicide residue on them. So you can look up the Environmental Working Group's Dirty Dozen to find out uh, the most pesticide-ridden fruits and vegetables on the market. And so the Clean 15 are foods that had relatively few pesticides that were detected on them. And so they had found very low concentration of uh, detectable pesticides in there in contrast to the Dirty Dozen, which had a higher number of it. And so get online and look at Environmental Working Group to see those resources for yourself and educate yourself when you're going in the grocery store in the produce section. And then even on top of that, there's another issue to be mindful of, which is that sometimes organic produce or food, fruits and vegetables that are listed as organic, they still have methods of uh, what they call organic pesticides and herbicides. So they still qualify as organic, but they might still be containing some harmful ingredients. So again, just do your research on that. It's uh, it's really varies from fruit to fruit or region to region. So we won't get into the, the specifics on that, but do your research on even searching for the safest organic produce for your area. And it all seems kind of complicated, and hopefully it's not overwhelming people who, who haven't been informed about this. This is all reflective of how a lot of these things require systemic change, and, and, and hopefully over time, as we educate our young people, that these changes can happen. Yeah, it can definitely be a little bit overwhelming, and here's the thing. Just keep in mind, whether it's fruit, whether it's meat, 
uh, whether it's nuts or whatever, you know, whole food you're trying to acquire. Sometimes people ask the question, is chicken good for me? Is, you know, are strawberries good for me? It's going to vary based on which chicken are you talking about? Which strawberries are you talking about? Did you just harvest these wild strawberries from, you know, the bushes on the Bad River Reservation in Wisconsin? Well, yeah, those are going to be awesome for you. They're in season, they're local, you pick them yourself. Um, or are you buying, you know, Driscoll strawberries uh, in the middle of the winter in uh, Jackson, Wyoming, at a non-organic store, well, those strawberries are going to be pretty devoid of the nutrients that you need. And so, again, it's not the worst possible. I could think of worse things that you can eat than, you know, an out-of-season strawberry, but it's definitely not going to be super beneficial. So, it's all about looking for, um, you know, what's specific to your region. And, uh, you know, there's just so many things surrounding uh, whether something is a good choice. Uh, back to the chicken question. People ask us that all the time, you know, well, whether it's chicken or whether it's beef or, uh, you know, another meat, this is why uh, wild meats are often such a great choice or meats that have been hunted because we know that those are all great um, if it's been hunted ethically. But, uh, you know, are we looking at a chicken that is free range that has been ethically produced that has no hormones and nasty stuff in it that, you know, the chickens haven't been treated horribly. We've all seen documentaries of examples of that. Um, that's the questions that you have to ask yourself. You know, I guarantee you if you're going through the fast food line, that's not going to be a good choice of chicken for you. But if you're talking free range, um, you know, locally produced, that might be a great option. So it's not just about is X food good for me? It's all of these questions that surround each and every food choice. And while it might seem overwhelming right now, trust me, you will get in the habit of being able to discern what's good or bad. And uh, things will fall into place if you just uh, get in the habit of, of asking yourself these questions every time you shop. Yeah, and you're, you're bringing up some things too that make me think about some other stuff that we had learned over time about the grocery store. And this kind of goes into uh, continuing to buy food as, 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 or as real whole food as soon as you can and as soon as it gets on the shelves. Because we were looking it up and we found out that one study showed that on average vegetables travel 1,500 miles from the farm that they were produced at to your table. And in that duration, many of them lose their nutritional content. And uh, one particular study done by Penn State showed that spinach stored at 39 degrees still loses much of its nutritional content. And so, you know, that really makes us think differently about about the foods that we're choosing. Are we choosing foods that are that are that are need to be stored at temperatures and travel very far and lose their content? Or are we going to choose other types of whole foods that are are better at storage? And it makes us think about our ancestors, right? And our ancestors had all these storage devices where I come from, they had baskets and pots, you know, they would store the corn, they'd store in dried squash, dried meat, all these types of things in there. And, you know, people in different parts of native country had other ways of, of storing meat and frozen meat and, you know, drying meat, drying fish and all that kind of stuff. So we really have to think about all this stuff in a historical context too, about how new all this is that we are living and how the, the, this may be responsible for the, the detrimental impacts on our health. So there are some more steps that you can do to take action and 
restoring your relationship to food. And one of those things is to cook as often as possible. Um, and this is a step that you can start even before you completely figure out exactly which foods are the best choices for you in your area. I mean, because as you've heard, this is a complicated question and it's a continual, continual learning process. And just some words of encouragement, Thosh and I are always learning and changing our habits in terms of what we cook and eat because new information comes out all the time and we learn more about ourselves all the time. In any case, cooking is something that everyone should learn how to do from a very young age. It's interesting because uh, I'm a big fan of the writings of Dr. Charles Eastman, who is a, a Dakota a medical doctor. He was born and raised in the traditional ways, the old ways in Minnesota, and he eventually went off to be educated at Dartmouth College and Boston University Medical School. And uh, so he was uh, around in the early 1900s. And uh, he made, made a lot of interesting predictions about wellness, uh, which we'll get into another time. But one of the things that he said is that in the future, he could see um, all of the higher end schools teaching children how to cook and to be outdoors from a young age because he knew how important that was. And what do we see now at the Montessori schools and the private schools? Kids are learning how to cook um, and there's not so much worry about, are they going to get burned? Are they going to get hurt? It's more about, hey, this is a life skill that teaches you to have a relationship with your food. Uh, when you know where your foods are coming from, when you are, are involved in the preparation of your food, you're so much likely to have appreciation for that food, uh, to enjoy the process. And uh, it's just important, uh, an important skill to learn. I, for one, unfortunately, didn't learn how to cook until I was about 23 years old. <laughs> but um, hey, you know, anybody can get there and uh, it'll make all of the difference in your personal wellness once you learn how to cook. And it's also important for us to view cooking as a ceremony again and, and to cook mindfully and to cook with good thoughts and to have good conversation uh, while we're cooking or while we're sitting down to eat food. And that was one, one teaching that I heard a lot of uh, elders talk about growing up is that they don't they say don't cook mad. You know, you're putting all that negative energy in the food, especially if you're cooking with this real foods, you know, they're they're more receptive of, of energy and frequencies and things like that. That's why our people had given thanks to them. It also works on the opposite end of the spectrum with negativity. So so cooking, we have to look at as a, as a ceremony once again and to really take pride in it. And back in the day, our ancestors spent a lot of time preparing and cooking that food. When you learn how to cook right, when you learn to cook all of your favorite foods, you can make stuff for in 15, 20 minutes. And so cooking should be really prioritized once again. And in dominant culture, just in our culture in general, as Native people, as non-Native people, we've kind of given up our power and we, we go out to eat a lot and we, re, we rely on other people to cook for us. And especially when we're at home, I can see when you're on travel, but when we're at home, a lot of times we'll go out to eat. People will go out to eat five, six times a week. And what we are doing is we are just allowing others to cook for us, strangers, uh, cooking with foods that we don't know where these foods come from. This, what are the ingredients? It may be a so-called healthy meal, but maybe they use hydrogenated oil or some kind of vegetable oil to cook that in there and not something healthier like coconut oil. Or, and so these are some things to think about that when we are cooking at home, we know exactly the quality of foods. We know exactly 
exactly the ingredients. And like Chelsea said, we're more likely to have more gratitude for that food is because we actually put our energy into making that food. It should be food. Cooking shouldn't be something that is looked at as a chore. We should be excited to cook. I know we are in our home. We get so excited to cook. You know, we cook, you know, one, two times a day and we usually only try to go out to eat like once a week. And we're also foodies in addition to people that love health and wellness. So we like to go around the town and try other food, but we make that to like one time a week. And so also you'll see a difference too. I tell people all the time, if you just cook at home and with all real foods, you know, good sources of protein, good sources of fats and good sources of complex carbs, you'll see immediately and feel a difference in your body while you're cooking at home and, and eating these, these healthier foods. So cooking is, is a big one that we must do again. So the next one is giving thanks, which we already talked about a little bit earlier when we were talking about the values based eating choices. Uh, but again, this is an actionable item that you can incorporate into any meal, any day of the week, uh, no matter where you are, what you're eating, you can always give thanks and, and you always should give thanks not only to your food and to every plant and animal that sacrificed itself for that food, but for every hand that went into the preparation of that, whether it had been hunted or harvested or grown, um, whether it had traveled some miles and there was somebody driving that delivery truck or <laughs> flying that airplane. I mean, hopefully your food hasn't traveled that far, but in any case, we need to give thanks to every uh, hand that went into preparing that food and, and getting it to your plate. Um, when we have gratitude for our food, um, it's, gonna, it's going to make us uh, think a little bit more deeply about the food choices that we're making, and it will remind us all the time to be humble. And so even those of us who are very particular about the foods that we eat and the choices that we make for our health, uh, we shouldn't go about that with an arrogance or with a sense of superiority over others who haven't reached that point in their wellness journey, uh, we should always uh, go about this healthy lifestyle in a humble way and be so grateful for the food that's in front of you because we know that a lot of people have sacrificed so that we could eat that food today. In addition to that, that also means continuing our giving of thanks ceremonies. Those These are things that we should continue to do as families, as clans, as communities, and we know that we have ceremonies after we harvest some of the first foods that are to grow. We have ceremonies to honor the animal after we go out and hunt animal and given its life or the plants that have given their lives and their bodies for us to eat. We always have these, these giving of thanks recitals that are most eloquently expressed in our languages. And we should continue to do these, not just at community gatherings, but we should continue to do this in our own homes. And everyone has different ways of doing this. Some people wake up and the first thing that they do in the morning is do that. And they, they encompass the whole day. Some people do it right before they eat. Some people do it as they eat. But however it is done, this is a very important component to restoring a relationship to food. So that's the basic summary of the food conversation and where we're at with our beliefs in um, adapting ancestral food ways. And I know it's a lot and it might seem overwhelming for some of you out there. But again, remember, uh, Thosh and I were both uh, pretty much raised in your standard uh, conventional American food ways, uh, as most people who were raised on reservations were. And um, you can always learn to reconnect and reestablish our relationships with these foods. And that's important for all of our community members all across Native country 
to do that. And we have the right to do that. And we have the ability to do that. And there's a lot of people putting a lot of work into that. And so don't feel discouraged. Feel excited about the opportunity to now uh, transform your relationship with food. And believe it or not, the, the food conversation does not end here. Man, we could talk for days and days and hours about pretty much every uh, little topic we just brought up there. So there will be plenty of more food podcasts coming your way in the future of the Welfare Culture episodes. But uh, for now, we just wanted to provide a little bit of a summary there so that you can at least take your first steps into reestablishing your healthy relationship with food. Yeah, and I want to echo some of those comments there that there's so much to discuss when it comes to food. There's so much layers to food. It's complex. It's one of the most complex subjects of our time. And yet it's it's a very powerful determiner of our health. So this is a journey. So we encourage everyone to be patient in this journey. Lots of work to be done. But as we always say that we're doing the work here and now, our generation has to get the ball rolling because the purpose of the work that we're all doing is, is for our future generations, is for our children and their children and so forth. And so we may not see these changes in our lifetime, but again, a lot of us are okay with going on and moving on into the spirit world and seeing this world and knowing that we had a part in it. And we're going to be an ancestor. We're going to be able to help and aid things and move things along. So there's so much more to discuss. Not everything can be encompassed in this one episode about food, but we just thought we'd start off there and share some of our ideas and all that. So once again, thank you for tuning in to Wealth for Culture podcast. The Hoogai.